Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest is a returning guest. In episode 246, Ernie Baca came on to talk to us about his experiences of living in Mexico and beating cancer in Mexico. If you guys haven't heard that episode, I highly suggest you go back and listen to that one. It was unbelievable. I had shivers going down my arm. It was crazy. Today, what I want to do is invite Ernie back to the show and we're going to be talking a little bit about his work in law enforcement, specifically in Latin America and some of the safety concerns and tips and tricks and anything to do with safety and security in Latin America. So, Ernie, welcome back to the show. Very happy to have you here. Thank you, Mikkel. It's an honor to be on your show and thank you for having me back. Pleasure is mine. Maybe you can give the guys a quick background on your professional capacity and and why you get to talk about these types of things. Well, Mikkel, I started my actual career with the United States Marshal Service. And they have several duties. And one of their duties is the security of the courthouse, the federal court system. And so basically I was given that duty. And then we also have the duty of fugitives. And then I was also on several task forces, violent crimes task forces, DEA task forces, while I was with the U.S. Marshal Service. I spent 10 years with them. And as you said in my last intro, I provided security for high threat trials such as John Gotti, Timothy McVeigh, the World Trade Center bombers. Later on in my career, I went on to what used to be the United States Customs Service Department of Treasury, and I became a special agent with them. And post 9-11, they created the Department of Homeland Security, and I was absorbed into what now is known as Homeland Security Investigations. During my time with the Marshal Service, I worked on the border, so I worked hand-in-hand with the Mexican government on fugitive issues. And later on in Homeland Security with Homeland Security Investigations, while I was in D.C., I worked extensively through, I was in the National Security Division, and then I went to the Financial Investigations Divisions, and we had several programs within Latin America where we assisted the countries of Mexico, Colombia, Panama, Brazil, Argentina, Paraguay. And it was a symbiotic relationship between these countries and us. We exchanged information. I worked on several of those projects. I've also worked in the Middle East. I put together a international task force in the Middle East. And so I have a, a wide array of background 
in Latin America and also overseas. Not to mention, I also spent three years as a country attache. So basically, I was the representative for Homeland Security in Brazil for three years. Well, I think it's really interesting because pretty much all of the countries that you just mentioned are super popular places with expats and places that I have very strong ties in that I have lived in a lot of those countries and have residencies in a lot of those countries that you've mentioned. So it's very interesting to have someone with your experience onto the program to talk about the security in these countries. And as I said in our last episode, you were hunting bad guys like legit bad guys, not uh, traffic fines, real bad guys. So I'm happy to kind of take the conversation in whichever direction you would like. Maybe we can start with Mexico and move on to a little bit in Brazil or some of your experiences in Colombia. I mean, those are really popular places these days for expats. Well, Mikel, security, let me first start off with something that, you know, I always like to talk about security. And actually, I kind of stole this from George Carlin. George Carlin, in one of his bits, it's an old bit that he does, and he says, and and excuse the comments, it's actually George Carlin that I'm quoting here, but he (laughs) said, security is an illusion. Security is an illusion to make white people feel safe. And it's a joke that he makes, and, and he talks about airport security and how, you know, you go through this airport security, but it's not really secure and that type of thing. But I always use that as an example because I always say the same thing. Security is an illusion. And what I mean by an illusion is that we tend to think of security of, okay, I'm in Mexico, I'm safe. I'm in Colombia, I'm safe. Or we compare, like, for example, I live in Mexico right now. The cartels are very famous here. You know, they've made national news. There's several congressmen in the United States that want to send the military in to fight the cartels. So what ends up happening in these cases is that you start with this misconception that Mexico is this place where there's they're shooting back and forth every day. And no matter where you go, it's dangerous because there's a cartel and they're going to send in the military. And that's not necessarily true. And when I say it's an illusion, though, at the same time, you have a lot of expats that live here. And one of the the obstacles that I have to overcome when I explain security to these people in Mexico is that normally what happens is Well, you know, there's mass shootings in the United States. I feel safer here in Mexico because it's safer here in Mexico. And it's not necessarily safer in the sense, the way I see security, and and I've spent 30 years in that field, is that security is something that this illusion that we create, and we start creating this illusion to feel safe. And the minute we start feeling safe is that's when it becomes dangerous. And what I mean by feeling safe is, for example, here in Mexico, they usually, a lot of people say, well, you know, I, I do a lot of security alerts. Like, for example, when there's a lot of activity on the border, because there's a lot of expats that travel to the United States or to Canada through the United States. And I say, don't travel through this area right now. It's not very good because there's a lot of violence going on. And everybody, I always get the, uh, uh, well, I went through there two days ago and nothing happened. I went through there and everybody starts creating this false sense that it's okay. And I said, you might have gone through there two days ago and it was fine or you weren't there when all the violence was going on. But it's a matter of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so you just need to be aware. And it's not about I feel safe here in Mexico. I haven't had any issues. I travel up and down the roads, but there are certain things that I do 
that I ensure my security no matter where I go. And one of the arguments is I tell people when they say, well, you know, I was, I went through this road two days ago, which I tell people not to go through at that time. And I say, well, you know, I was in Chicago working undercover in some of the worst neighborhoods in Chicago. Nothing ever happened to me. Does that mean that neighborhood is safe? And it's a matter of understanding what's going on. For example, when I travel to the border, I check the news. Tomorrow, I have a trip to the border. I'm going through an area that's very, very hot right now. But I'm going through an area that I know that I grew up around. Not only am I going through that area, but before we leave, we're going to check the news. I only go at certain hours. So the whole thing of security is mitigating risk. That's what I always tell people. It's mitigating risk. And these countries can be dangerous. We talk about Colombia. You know, Colombia was gained fame for Pablo Escobar and, and drug trafficking and everything else. But you know, you go to Bogota, you don't run into drug traffickers. You come here to Mexico, you don't run into drug, unless you're in the business. Sure. And I had the privilege of seeing intelligence reports. I saw on a daily basis what was going on in Mexico, what was going on in Colombia. And if I took that and I told the public, they would freak out. But it's not because it's not because it's a really bad place. It's just because I gained one side or I would receive one side of information that other people didn't have access to. And sometimes what happens is you can take that information, misconstrue it, and all of a sudden, Mexico's dangerous, or all of a sudden, Colombia's dangerous. I mean, I can even tell you from my, my coworkers, when I tell people I live in Mexico, they think I'm crazy. And those coworkers are coworkers that we work different investigations on the cartels and all of that stuff. So they, we saw the same reports and they're like, how could you dare go down there? And it's like, yes, but I'm not going to where the reports are. I don't live in those areas. I don't hang out in those areas. And I think security is something that if you take some simple steps, that's all it takes is some simple steps. You'll be safe. There's no such thing as 100% safe. No matter where you go in the world, if you go to the United States, I could go to the safest city in the United States and somebody for some reason goes crazy and does a mass shooting. It could happen. Things happen. And, you know, I always equivocated to, to also getting drunk and driving. You know, what happens when you get behind the wheel? 90% of the time, nothing happens. You don't get into a car accident. It's that one time that you do get in the car accident that is fatal. So what's the best remedy? Don't get behind the wheel drunk. And it's the same thing with security. What's the best remedy? Don't do certain things and you'll be fine. <laughs> and you reduce that risk. Yeah, I think that these are very important points because situational awareness is, is unbelievably important when not just in traveling or being an expat, but anywhere in life. I've been traveling now for 23 years straight and I've been to 110 countries. I've never been mugged. I've never been robbed. I've never been kidnapped. I've never been attacked. I've never had any of these types of things that have ever happened to me. And I was in El Salvador 20 years ago. I've drove across Africa, South Africa, Botswana, Zimbabwe, Nigeria, Kenya, Uganda. I've been to Iran and North Korea and all these countries, and I've never had any problem. But it's not necessarily that I'm saying every single one of these countries in every area is safe. 
It's that I took certain measures to make sure that I was safe. I wasn't out drinking at two o'clock in the morning or going into areas that I know I shouldn't be in. I wasn't flashing expensive jewelry. I wasn't being lippy to other people or, or putting myself in situations that were going to get me in a situation that I didn't want. I live in Panama City right now, downtown Panama City. I live in the best area that is here and I'm not walking around here at two o'clock in the morning by myself or anything like that. And and I own a firearm and I have a concealed carry license and stuff like that. I'm still not going out at two o'clock in the morning doing silly things, right? I want to make sure that I'm going out at normal times. I'll take an Uber Black to the restaurant that I'm going to. Then we have one pick us up at the restaurant or at the hotel, drive us home. Four years here in Panama, not one problem. I've not had one of my clients who have had a problem here, but is the situational awareness and just making good decisions throughout your day. Exactly, Mikkel. And it's very important that you have that situational awareness. And just like you said, you take certain precautions. I'll use Mexico, for example, and then I'll go on to Brazil. But Mexico, for example, when you're traveling, there's really simple things that you can do. Don't travel at night. Like you said, don't go at two o'clock in the morning in downtown Panama, but don't travel at night. Stay with traffic. Don't get isolated. Just because there's military around, don't think of it that they're safe, that they're protecting you. Maybe there's military around because there's a lot of activity going on. Be a little bit more alert. Stop at gas stations that are large gas stations where everybody's stopping at. Don't stop at remote gas stations. Send your live location and WhatsApp to your loved ones and your family members. Actually, I have an app that I use called 360. I'm not, not associated with them, but I have the Find My iPhone and I have the an app, a GPS tracking app. And my wife and I know where each other is at all the time. And it's for security reasons. We know that if something happens, we know the last location. Even if they tell you to turn off the phone, we know the last location. We know that if, for example, my wife has the U.S. Embassy's phone number on speed dial, so do I. If anything happens and she doesn't show up or I don't show up, we contact the embassy right away. Those are things that you can do to mitigate this risk. And like you said, take an Uber Black because Uber, they keep track of who the drivers are. They know which driver was the last one to pick you up. So if something happens to you, you're prepared. And having situational awareness, for example, my wife and I, we've even been here in Mexico at the bus station. Someone tried to get our attention in a van. They opened up the door to the van and we, right away, we walked straight into the bus station because we knew not that they were targeting us. Maybe they weren't. Maybe they were. But we knew right away that what if we pay attention to them, they may pull us into that van. And it's not that they may have even been looking at somebody else or trying to get someone else's attention. But we had that awareness that, you know what, run into the bus station right away because we don't want any problems. And those are the types of things that you can do to mitigate these types of risk. Like you said, also, don't take flashy don't be wearing your Rolex watch. Also, the, the other thing too is if you're a tourist, I'll, I'll use a perfect example in Brazil. We had a undercover unit from FBI come in to Brazil that they do undercover operations in different countries. And we were hosting them because they wanted to do an evaluation of Brazil. And we went to Rio de Janeiro and we were staying on the Copacabana Beach. And... One of the things that you want to do when you get to the hotel is talk to the bellhop, you know, talk to the desk attendant, 
ask exactly what can I do? Where can I go? What? Because if you go on the Copacabana beach, you can go at three or four o'clock in the morning. If you walk on a boardwalk, you can walk on the boardwalk at three or four o'clock in the morning and no one's going to bother you. There's plenty of police security, but I'll tell you what, if you go a block away from the beach, you're in the middle of the hood. And if you go onto the beach, because it's actually, it's a very common practice where People will say, hey, let's go for a walk on the beach. And there's somebody in the beach in the dark that comes up to you and robs you. So what will the bellhop tell you? Don't go into the beach after dark. Don't go behind the hotel after dark. Well, this FBI agent, him and his wife, actually was a pair that actually worked together. And we told him, we told him, look, don't, if you're going to go for a walk, don't go for a walk on the beach at night. And don't go a block south of the hotel. Just stay on the boardwalk. Whatever you do, stand. And this guy got an attitude with us and told us, you know what? I've been in the worst neighborhoods in all of them. I've been in Thailand. I've been all of in the worst neighborhood. You know, one of the things that he forgot is that he had a whole team covering him. He had a whole team taking care of him in those neighborhoods. Well, needless to say, we woke up the next morning and the agent got robbed. Because they decided they were going to go for a walk on the beach, which we told them not to do. And this is an FBI agent. This is not anybody normal. But this is an FBI agent that didn't listen to us. And, you know, I worked there. I knew how it worked. And we told him, do not go on the beach. And he did because him and his wife wanted to go for a romantic walk on the beach at night. And of course, thinking I'm an FBI agent and nothing's ever happened to me, that's not the attitude to take. And I'm, I, you know, this is kind of a, you know, I'm not trying to put down FBI or anything else, but this is a perfect example of the attitude people take that, oh, I'm fine. I'm safe. I'm in a safe area. I'm in the best area. For, for example, you said in Panama, you live in the nicest neighborhood. Just taking that for granted that I live in the nicest neighborhood, that nothing's going to happen that's the illusion I talk about. Talk about airport security. I'll give you a perfect example of airport security. In the United States, after 9-11, TSA, we used to call them TSA 1000 standing around because they ended up, they basically hired a bunch of people. Now they have body scanners. You go through, what do you call it? Scanning devices for metal. And I've even been through where they even searched me because the metal detector went off and you know, I had a little coin in my pocket or something that made it go off. And we we build that sense of security. But if someone really wants to hijack a plane, they're going to hijack a plane, you know, no matter what. And I, I can tell you right now, the inspector general, they do Department of Homeland Security or the inspector general for TSA. They basically do annual evaluations. They actually send people through security hiding weapons, hiding things that shouldn't be hidden. And they see, let's see how much stuff we can get across. And to be honest with you, if you read some of those reports, some of the stuff that gets through security, even with all of that stuff, but see what, what people don't understand is like what George Carlin was saying, it's an illusion to make you feel safe. And so those are the things that you need to take into consideration. It's having a false sense of security or saying that I'm safe, I'm fine. That's the illusion you're building in your head. You're convincing yourself you're safe. You know, a lot of people say, well, you're trying to scare everybody. No, I'm not trying to scare everybody. Like I said, if you take certain precautions, you're going to mitigate the risk. 
Okay. You take Secret Service. They protect the president of the United States. When they do their work, they are already aware that something could happen. So what do they do? They take every single scenario that can happen and let's mitigate it. If we know that there's an entrance that's not covered or there's an entrance or an exit or or whatever, they go and they do a survey and they say, okay, this is what we're going to do to mitigate disk risk because someone can come in through here or someone can come in through there. And what happens? The president shows up, nothing happens, nobody gets hurt, and they move on. But they have prepared for every single different scenario. Now, they can't prepare for 100% of the scenarios, and they know that. But they can prepare for 90%, 95%. So they have their methods of preparing for those 95% of those scenarios. So that's what we need to keep in mind when we talk about security. No, those are all very important points. And then to circle back just to on the Uber Black, what I've done, and this is just a quick tip for people, is you can actually set a family plan. So my mother, my wife, and me are all on a family plan. And then I've set it up so that we get an email automatically when one of the cars picks someone up. And I've built a folder on my email. And so every single time, every single trip, I have it logged. So we know who the driver was, the license plate, where it was picked up, and where it was dropped off. And then it, it shares. So I get a notification on my, for my wife when she goes to the supermarket and comes back. And she, when I go out for a business lunch, she gets a notification on her phone. And same with my mother. So that way, we kind of always are looking out for one another. And we know what would happen if someone doesn't show up or is supposed to be somewhere and they're not there. It's like, well, where was the last place? With the taxis and you're paying cash, although I, I do love cash and I think cash is a great thing, I think that it's a lot more difficult to track these types of things and to protect yourself in some random car that you've just, because it's yellow, you've jumped inside it and you think that that is trustworthy. So obviously everything is going to have give and take and you know we have privacy concerns and security concerns and we have to balance these types of things what someone feels comfortable with but it's also important to try to stack these things in your life my example before and and thank you for calling me on it is that i live in a very safe neighborhood but i don't live in a very safe neighborhood and then i'm like that's it and then be arrogant about it and not do anything else you have to do everything in a row. You want to try to stack one thing on top of the next thing, on top of the next thing, on top of the next thing. I have great situational awareness. When I get out of a car, I'm walking around. Before I pull out my keys and things like that, I will have a look around. Before I get out of an Uber Black at night, I have my keys in my hand ready to go and the security is right there and I give them a wave and everything like that. And so when we're even going from the car into the building, the security, I've made eye contact with him. He knows we're coming in everything like that. And it's does not, I'm not a paranoid person. I, this doesn't negatively affect my life or make me feel like I'm unsafe. Actually, I think that this is just falls in the category of personal responsibility. I think that you have to look after yourself, whether you're in Panama where I am today, and I would generally consider Panama to be a a, quite a safe place, certainly compared to some other countries in Latin America. I feel safe here. But if you're in Mexico and we've lived in Brazil and we've lived in many of these types of countries, I would do things like this when I lived in Abu Dhabi in the UAE, which is probably regarded as the most safe country in the world. I'd still have situational awareness about it. And I can tell you, there are many places back home in Canada, many places in the United States that are a whole heck of a lot less safe than some of the countries that I've lived in around the world. 
Exactly. And, and you know what, Mikkel, you bring up a good point. When you talk about the, the processes that you use, you always check out the security. You always see, you make eye contact. Or when you're getting out, when you're getting into the car, you look around. But actually, those are habits that you build. Maybe without even realizing it, you do these things. I don't think you probably think about it. I mean, you're thinking about it now because we're talking about well, it. I'm definitely we're running actually- through things at the moment as we're talking. <laughs> yeah. But I can tell you there's no way that I'm... Like I know that I physically do them and I have these mental checklists in my head, but I'm not like, okay, stop. Now I need to do this. Same type of thing. I'll give you another example and then I'll let you continue. Say I go to a brand new city and I walk out of the hotel. It's middle of the day. I'm going for a walk and I'm walking down the block. Every hundred meters, couple hundred meters, I turn around, I take a look behind me and I try to make a mental map in my head of how I got there. Because when you turn around to go back to the hotel, it's all now in reverse, right? Because you've turned right out of the hotel and gone down the street. Well, when you're coming back, it's now left for you. So you actually have to build this mental model in your head of your situational awareness, where you are in relation to everything else, because you want to make sure that you can find your way home. You know where you're going. You're not ending up in a bad area or an area you're not supposed to be in. Or So you have to be, uh, you have to think these things through and it does become a habit. Absolutely. And the more you do it, it becomes a habit. And I always tell people that if you build these habits, you don't even think about it. Like, for example, I spent 30 years in law enforcement and, you know, a lot of times you, you end up kind of you know, I, there, I, there's a lot of habits that I still have when I w- go into a restaurant. I'll always go to the back of the restaurant. I'll so, always sit in the corner. I'll, I'm always facing the door. And a lot of times I have perceptions. Those people at that table over there, uh, there's something wrong. I can probably go into a restaurant here in Monterrey and tell you who's cartel, who's not. Not necessarily that they're there to, but I'm aware that they are or they possibly are. So I'm going to stay far away because normally if someone's going to come in and hit a cartel member, they're going to go straight to that person. They're going to go do their stuff and they're going to get out. Not that this is going to happen. These are things that go through my mind, but it's a habit. It's a habit that I built over time. And those are the things that I tell people is if you build these habits, for example, you won't have to even think about it. You'll just do it. And That's what's very important. And it's being able to see around you and being able to evaluate the situation. The other thing I say about human nature, and I don't know if you've ever noticed this, when you get a bad feeling about something, humans are very intuitive. We're very intuitive people. And, you know, even they talk about this in entrepreneurship. If you have a bad feeling, don't go with it. You know, go with what you feel is going to work. And the reason why is they say, trust your gut or trust your intuition. And, you know, many times that I've been in situations where things are going to go south, I felt bad. There's something wrong with the situation. Even when I was doing undercover work, when you do undercover work and you don't feel good in a meeting or you don't feel good meeting with the person, you either say, you know what, not today. Or you might tell your cover team, you know what, take this down because it's not right. And Many times that you get that gut feeling or I got that gut feeling and I said, no more. Or maybe, you know, I had that gut feeling that, okay, this guy looks dangerous or he pulled out a gun on me, but I think I'm good because he doesn't look like you use that intuition. And it's the same thing when you're out and I'm talking from a law enforcement perspective and working undercover, but you can utilize those same things in that 
you're walking down the street and I've seen the same person like five times every time I'm looking behind me, usually when someone's following you. We used to, in surveillance school, we used to say, if you, you always look for the same person or same thing in succession, in close succession. So for example, if you see a person, let's say you see this person and five minutes later, you see that other, that same person in another place, then there's more than likely that they're following you. And those are the types of things that, and trust your gut. I'm going to go down the street and it just doesn't look right. You trust your gut. And that, I'll tell you what, trusting your intuition can, and even if there is nothing wrong, I've never been 100% right with my gut. We've even had to stop things when I didn't feel right. And it kind of messed the whole investigation up because nothing was really wrong there. But, you know, we always used to say safety is first. And that's what we always, the safety of the agents are first. And if I felt that the agents around me weren't going to be safe, I mean, even if I felt safe, I called it and I would say, nope, we're out. And even when I was a supervisor, we're out. We're not doing this. I don't care how good the case is. We're not doing this. And maybe nine times out of 10, I was right. One time I was wrong, but you put up with the times that you're wrong so that you can be right. (laughs) That's basically how it works. For sure. For sure. My wife always laughs at me because every time we go into a restaurant, I'll rearrange all of the seating for everybody. And I and I have no qualms about it because I have to sit with my back against the wall. I can't have a meeting or enjoy a dinner or relax with clients or something like that. If people are walking behind me or if I can see them out of my peripheral view or anything like that, I need to have my back against a wall. I need to be able to have the full view of everything. And once again, it just kind of goes back to those habits that I, I have built into myself and my personal responsibility as a husband, as a father, as a son, as a business owner, as as people that I care for. All of these things, for me to feel good about situation, there's certain things that have to happen. So sometimes we'll get there and there'll be like seven people and I'll make people move. Like <laughs> I don't care. I'm like, no, no, let's, let's do this. Let's change this. And you sit over here. And I always sit with my back against the solid wall and, and uh, viewing the room, as you had said. And like I said, it, it's just building little habits and building habits that you feel that are going to make you feel that you can, for example, even the other thing that I do is when I go into a restaurant, it's where's the exits. Because you're not necessarily always going to be able to go out the front door if something happens. But these are little things that I'm telling you from a law enforcement perspective, but you can utilize them in your daily life. Even when I used to go to Rio, I'll give an example when I used to travel to Rio because I was not based, when I was in Brazil, I was based in Brasilia, which is the capital. And we used to go and do our operations in different places with the federal police there. And we did a lot of traveling to Rio, Sao Paulo. And Rio is kind of a different animal. Sao Paulo is also dangerous in the sense of a big city. It's kind of like New York walking through. You just don't want to go through certain places. But I use Rio as an example because we used to go out a lot. And also on a diplomatic end, we used to have a lot of assistant secretaries, uh, deputy secretaries of Homeland Security, also even hosting deputy secretaries of different departments that were in our purview of helping out with for example, Department of Justice people would come down and we'd introduce them to the our federal police contacts. And when we would go to Rio, I would go, I would take one credit card or one debit card that I knew didn't have a lot of money on it or whatever. 
and I would put it in a, in a different, I had a different, a separate wallet that would take with me. So I, and I would have a certain amount of cash that I would always have. So if I had to give my wallet, okay, I'm losing my debit card and I can call the bank. I didn't have my full wallet with every single credit card that I had, my ID. And actually I would take an ID. I would take my, my diplomatic ID that I knew that the, actually I wouldn't even take a, my local IDs or driver's licenses or anything else. I had a diplomatic, uh, they issued me a little diplomatic ID that I would carry with me. And that way, even if uh, somebody robbed me and saw, oh shoot, this guy's a diplomat. Those are things that I, I used to do. And I used to say, okay, well, if I lose a hundred bucks, it's not a big deal. Even now when in Mexico, you're supposed to carry your resident card with you everywhere. And a lot of people say, no, I don't want to lose it because it's a, it's a pain. I carry it. I have a small wallet. I put it in a, a pocket that's very hard to pickpocket. If they try to pull it out of my pocket, it's very hard. I have an air tag on the wallet. So at least I'm probably more than likely they're going to take my credit cards and they're going to throw the wallet somewhere. So hopefully I can locate the wallet with my residency card in it and I can call the bank and cancel all my credit cards. And so those are the things that you can do that, and I always say, 99% of the time, nothing's going to happen. I survived a 30-year law enforcement career. Like I said in the last episode, I had some close calls, but nothing serious to the point. But if you look at even in my agency, the percentage of agents that do get uh, injured or, or, or seriously hurt or killed, it's a very small percentage compared to the amount of agents that we have in the agency, but it's because we take precautions. It's because we do certain things. We're when we do certain operations, we always had the control of the situation and you can take control of your own situation, no matter where you're at in the world. And I even tell people, these are things that you need to do. Even when you're back home in the United States, where you've, if you say it's safer or you feel it's safer, I mean, in the United States, you know, you can go to middle of Ohio and think you're safe and maybe you're not because you're not a local person there. And the local person there, or the local drug addicts there need to rob somebody to get money for drugs. And even though that place is considered the safest city in the world or, you know, in the United States, it may not be safe for you if you're not taking those precautions. I think safety has to do with, like you said, a personal responsibility that the person takes. and it's your actions that actually dictate security. It's not the amount of police that are on the street. It's not the checkpoints. It's not the magnetometers. It's the things that you do to mitigate. Here's the thing in security. And, and I'll tell you what, even private security, bodyguard services, everybody does this. You do a risk assessment. When you have, when you're protecting somebody, when we were protecting a judge or you protecting an executive, you do a risk assessment when the executive or the judge or the president or whoever's going to go, what's the risk of the place that he's going to go to? For example, an executive might be going to a rival company and, you know, believe it or not, this, this could be actually dangerous for those executive because, you know, you're talking about a rival company. We're going to be on somebody else's turf per se, security wise and everything else. And, you look at all the different risks. You do an assessment. Which buildings are we going to go into? Who are we going to see? Why aren't they going to let us in with my bodyguards in? Why are my bodyguards have to stay outside? How can they come in with me? All of those things. Now, you're still going to have to put up with those restrictions. 
your bodyguards can't come in with you in the building. But you know what? How are we going to mitigate that? What are we going to do to mitigate that risk? Now, we can't make it 100% safe. We can't mitigate it 100%. But I don't know. Maybe we can put a bodyguard in the back and a bodyguard in the front. And if we have to run in, we know it the, or the, the door that's closest proximity to where they're going to be having the meeting. Those are the things that you do and you plan. And 99% of the time you plan for things that aren't going to happen. Believe it or not, that's the way it works in the security industry. And that's the way it should work for personal security. 99% of the time you plan for something that 99% probably won't happen. And guess what? You've mitigated your risk. Super exciting news. We just released our first in a series of expat guidebooks. These are in-depth country guides on how to move to another country. And the first one released is Expat's Guide on Moving to Mexico. It took us over two years to compile all the research and write this book on Mexico. And coming in at 475 pages, you can really see how much work has gone into this. It's a complete guide on everything you need to know if you want to move to Mexico, including where to live, immigration, taxes, lifestyle, buying property, how to get a driver's license, and a million other things you would never think you need the answers to. You can find the book directly on Amazon by searching for Expat's Guide on Moving to Mexico or go to expatguidebooks.com, which will take you to our online shop where you will find the book. Go to expatguidebooks.com. That's expatguidebooks.com. Well, it's interesting. I have very dear friends of mine who own a, a precious metals vault, and they've told me on multiple occasions for the first 30 to 45 minutes of every single day, the group of guys, they sit down, they look at all of the risks surrounding their geographic location, not just in that area or a neighborhood, but in the whole province of the whole country and the whole region. So what's happening in neighboring countries, what's happening with different cartels and governments and socialism and all of these types of things, you know, what's happening in the stability in the area. They're looking at every type of things. It's like, well, what if we're wrong? What if we're wrong? This is how I try to plan out a lot of my work with my private clients is I never make assumptions when we go through a plan that we're 100% right. I always want to think, okay, well, what is the downside risk here? What's going to happen if we've made a mistake or our assumptions are wrong on these things? We want to make sure that we have these redundancies in place over and over and over again. And yeah, same type of thing. Like I deal more in, in financial markets and things like this with risk mitigation, but it's the same type of concept is that 99% of the things that we prepare for, they never happen, but that's okay. You still need to be prepared for them. I think it's an important piece of the puzzle. Yeah. And it's always, it's a matter of having an, I, I call it an escape plan. <laughs> it's a matter of having that escape plan. And, and you're totally right, Mikhail, even in financial markets, especially when something's very volatile, you, you you need to prepare for that, right? And so what do you do? I'm, I'm just going to make a hypothetical situation because I'm not in very into the stock market or whatever. But let's say, you know, the stock market is volatile right now, but I've got a good opportunity to make some money. You're going to put those, you know, buys and sells in at a certain point, And then you're going to pull out at a certain point to stay secure because you don't know if it's going to keep going down. And those are the things that you do so that, okay, if all goes great, I'm going to make a lot of money. If all goes bad, I lost a certain amount of money, but I didn't lose my shirt. 
And that's what you basically have to do when it comes to security. And it's a matter of sitting down and planning. And like, for example, tomorrow, if you were contracting me to be your bodyguard tomorrow, every morning, Mikkel, we would sit down and say, let me see your schedule. What are you going to do today? And I'd have a whole team. If you said, well, I'm going to go to breakfast at this place. We're going to go here. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. I'd have a whole team saying, okay, well, what time does this place open? Where, where is it located? Where is it? What neighborhood is it located in? Those are all types of, you know, a lot of people, when you see bodyguards walking around with a celebrity or anybody else, you think, oh, you know, it's just a big guy that's hanging out with the celebrity. What you don't understand is there's a whole team behind those guys that's visiting the restaurants they're going to go to, visiting these places where they're going to be. And you know what? Not all the time does it happen. For example, I've been in the uh, protection industry, not in the industry, but when we were protecting a, a protectee and what are you, what's your plans for today? Oh, we're going to go to breakfast at this restaurant. And you're in the car, you're driving the guy to the restaurant. He says, you know what? I don't feel like going to that restaurant. I feel like going to another one. And you have to react and say, oh, shoot, we're going to another restaurant. You can't tell the protectee, no, we, we only can only go to this restaurant. No, you have to adjust. You have to react. And we have a whole team that's ready to react for any kind of change that the protectee needs to have done. You know, and I'm not going into the trade secrets of how we do it, but it's a matter of preparation. There's a lot more to it than what I'm, I'm simplifying it a lot. Of course, of course. You know, I'm I'm oversimplifying in some senses, but that's a complex situation. You have a very important person, a, a federal judge, a Supreme Court justice, uh, uh, high threat trials such as John Gotti. You know, you're you're looking at a mobster that you got on trial. Those types of things you need to plan for, totally different than your own personal security. But the point I'm trying to make is, you can take those simple things because they're simple concepts. And you can apply that to your everyday life. And if you apply that to your everyday life and you make it a habit, when people ask me, is Mexico safe? And the first thing I say is, it depends. I always answer it with, it depends. And everybody says, well, what do you mean it depends? I said, it depends how you act. It depends what you do. That's what makes you safe here in Mexico. It has nothing to do with the cartels. It has nothing to do... It has everything to do with your actions while you're here. That's what it has to do with. Even when I read news reports of Americans, there's been a couple of news reports. Now, there was one in Matamoros not too long ago. Three Americans went into the border town of Matamoros and they ended up at a cartel checkpoint. They ended up getting kidnapped. Two of them got killed and everybody went crazy. And first of all, they were there supposedly for plastic surgery. And I'm sitting there looking at these news reports. And first of all, you don't go to Matamoros for plastic surgery. That's the last place in Mexico you want to go for plastic surgery. Second of all, and then some people say, oh, well, they, you know, they had criminal histories. They might've been down there. It doesn't matter. It's the actions that these people took that got them to that point. They should have never crossed the border to begin with in that area. That area is very dangerous. Plastic surgery or no plastic surgery. And whether that was a case of mistaken identity or it was a case that they were there to do business, it doesn't matter. You shouldn't be there to begin with. And it was their actions. And I'm not trying to, don't get me wrong. This is a tragic situation. And it does sound bad that I'm saying, well, it was their actions, it was their fault. And 
unfortunately, that's the reality. And when you get robbed, yes, it could be random. What happened to these people were random. They got stopped at a random checkpoint, but they didn't do the things to mitigate that risk to begin with. That's the thing that really gets me is, is, you know what? You can travel down the most dangerous highway here in Mexico and be completely safe, but it's because of your actions that make you safe. It's not because the highway's got more security. It's not because the highway has more police. It's not because, you know, or it might be that you just don't travel down a certain highway. You're going to take a different route because you know that route right now is not, or you don't go through certain states here in Mexico that are very cartel controlled. You don't go through certain cities. And even when I go to the border, I take a certain route that I know that the cartel doesn't really, they're more to the east. They have a lot more activity to the east instead of to the west because this kind of the outskirts of town and where all the, the plants are. So I do all of those things. Now, does that mean that I'm not going to get stopped or there's not going to be a cartel checkpoint when I get there? No, that doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that I've already mitigated those risks. I've already made those plans in case something happens. Not only that, I drive a Jeep Cherokee with a 5.7 Hemi engine in it. It guzzles gas. But I'll tell you what, if I need to get out of there, I can get out of there very quickly. And, and those are the things that I do. I could own a little Audi with a four-cylinder engine, but I don't. And the reason why I don't is because, number one, I'm in a big truck if I have to hit something to get out of there. And number two, if I have to go at 100 miles an hour, I can. So those are the things, you know, I'm not telling everybody to go buy a Grand Cherokee, but the reason why I do it is because I have to travel through those areas to get to McAllen, Texas. But it's a matter of what you do to mitigate everything. It's, it's your own actions that's going to make you safe or going to make you. But the minute you start thinking, oh, it's safe, there's a bunch of police on the road. That's when you're going to get complacent. That's when you're not going to be looking around. That's when you, there's a car behind you and you haven't been noticing that it's been following you for the, without plates for the last three miles, four miles. I've had cars follow me without plates. And what do my wife and I do? I take off at 100 miles an hour, knowing that the car can't keep up with me. I'll stop at a gas station or I'll stop at the on the toll roads, at the toll booth, you know, at the restroom, at the rest area to see if they keep going or see if they pull in with me. But I'm in a public place where they can't do anything. And a lot of times they keep going straight. And I stay at the rep stop until, and were they following me? I don't know. But I mitigated those risks and... We were always alert. We're always seeing, looking for those things. And those are simple things that you can do to mitigate the risk. The problem that you have is assuming. There's a big saying, never assume anything, because if you take the word assume, you make an ass out of you and me. That is a very true, true, true statement. It's, it's about never assume that you're safe. Never assume, oh, well, I'm in a good part of Mexico or I'm a good part of Colombia or I'm in the middle of Bogota. Nothing's going to happen to me. I can tell you what happened in Bogota to one of our agents. He got in a taxi and in that taxis for the good part, if you go into Bogota and you take a, uh, an official taxi, you're okay, but it was raining and the guy knocked on the door, uh, knocked on the window like, hey, I'm getting wet. Please, 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 let's hear a taxi, please, please. And the agent said, okay, open the door. Guy got in, pulled a gun on him, and and robbed him. And this is a seasoned Homeland Security agent that was there. 
and making the simple mistake of letting a guy, because he felt sorry for the guy because he's getting wet outside. And probably even the taxi driver was in on it, you know, because he was, he was stationary. Instead of him telling, get out of here, get out of here to the taxi driver, he went and opened the door. These are things that you don't want to do when you're, when you're in a, in a foreign country, no matter where you go, even if you go to Europe and you might be in France or Rome or whatever, and you might feel safe because these places, many things don't happen. Well, things happen. It doesn't matter where you go. Things happen. But as long as you do your due diligence, you should be fine. Well, quick story from my side, and you mentioned France, which is kind of ironic. Probably 18, 20 years ago, I was in the south of France, absolutely gorgeous part of the country, beautiful day. And I noticed this group of French punks following me behind with their dogs. And it went like one block, two block, and I knew something wasn't right. So I went into a McDonald's and I sat there at a McDonald's for an hour, two hours, something like that. And they got bored and kept going. I'm sure that they were following me, but I never shared a word with them. I never said anything. They didn't say anything to me, but it just didn't feel right. It was that gut feeling that you said before. And I just went into a McDonald's and sat down and just waited basically. And then, you know, I don't know how, how long they were there. I was there for a couple of hours until I felt like it was fully safe before coming out again. But yeah, in so many years, just you know, being aware of all of these types of things, that's like the worst that's ever happened to me. But really, when you're describing a lot of these things, the the word that comes to mind for me is mental models. So I have mental models for everything that I do in my life. It helps me in my decision-making process. I have certain screens or ideas that I like to run projects and investments and situations and and people that I work through. I have these mental models of how things should work. And I have little checklists for everything that I do to help me in my decision-making process. And really, when you're describing a lot of these things, it sounds very similar to me in a physical sense of of going through these types of things. No, and it, it it's just, I'll tell you what, Mikael, it's part of life. You know what? If you build these habits of security, it can also help you in other parts of life. And being, for example, an entrepreneur, like you said, you have these certain processes that you're going to go through and you have to have that discipline. If you don't have that discipline and you don't build those habits, then you're not going to get anywhere. And you can apply these to life also. I mean, it, it has nothing to do with security. It has to do with life. If you, for, exa- for example, I, I'll give, and, you know, I, I might be getting off the topic of security, but this goes into the security when I talk about building habits. People have routines. Wake up at six o'clock in the morning. From six o'clock to seven o'clock, I'm going to read my emails. From seven o'clock to eight o'clock, I'll, you know, I'll have my coffee and I'll have my breakfast. At eight o'clock, I'm ready to work on this or work on that. And you have your routines. And even me as a retiree, I don't have a business that I'm running. I'm running a YouTube channel, but my wife and I have a routine. By 6.30 in the morning, we're already up. We're we're going for a walk. We're feeding our little ones. We have two little mini huskies. And then we have, okay, what are we going to do for today? And we make out a list the day before and we keep active. And even being a retiree or, or an expat overseas, a lot of times you got to build these habits so that you don't get bored or you don't get into a rut. Yeah, complacency. Complacency is is the enemy. Exactly. No, and, and you're completely right. And you become complacent 
complacency runs to procrastination and and in business procrastination can mean a loss of revenue and procrastination can also mean in when you talk about security and complacency can mean that you didn't do something because you didn't feel like it and it got you in trouble later on and you can apply this to your whole life this is something that i think if you make these habits and different types of habits your habits for work or your habits for your retired life, or your habits for your security. Like I said, they become habits. You don't think about them. I'm almost sure, Mikel, you, you, you've got all these scenarios in your head. And right now you're telling me about this, but I'm almost sure that you do it without even thinking about it. I mean, you, you know what you got to do and you're thinking about it. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it goes through your head, but it's such a habit that it's automatic. And there's a lot of habits in my life that are automatic and I do habit stacking. So when I do one thing, then I do the next thing, then I do the next thing. So things go in progression. But at the same time, I think that it's really important to kind of look at certain aspects in your life exactly like an airline captain would. I know I have lots of clients who are, are captains who did very well for themselves and and I work with them. And I've been told and and seen that they use checklists for everything. Even you've been mm -hmm. a pilot for 20 years, 30 years, you've done this every single day. They still go through a checklist every single day. Every takeoff, every landing, they have a checklist on these things. So there's habits that I have built in, but I still go back to having everything written out and worked out and make sure that I double check my own thing. And actually, I find it very relaxing. I had, I had a conversation with my COO the other day and we both love working from lists because if I feel like I've missed something or I've forgotten something, then actually I find that stressful. When I have a big to-do list, when I've got a big list of all of these things, like Today, as we're recording this, it's a Friday. I have my Friday wrap-up checklist, okay? It's got 15 things on it that I need to do before we hit the weekend. I have certain payroll things. I've got accounting things. I've got this. I got all of these types of things that need to be done. And then I'm able to relax. Well, a lot of these types of mental models and, and habits that you can build certainly apply to security. So when you're looking at this, you know, it's like, okay, first, I'm going to do this. Second, I'm going to do this. Third, I'm going to do this. And then when you run through it, are you 100% safe? No, not 100%, but you're probably a lot more safe after going through it than if you went through nothing and you had no mental models of how this is going to work. Then everything would be a surprise to you. No, and, and I'll give you a perfect example, Mikkel. And this is a, a story. It's an actual personal story of mine. In law enforcement, we train. If you go to a, any law enforcement academy, half the day, you're at the range. You're shooting. And it's muscle memory basically, is that you're building. And, you know, you're drawing from your holster and you're shooting. You're drawing from your holster and you're shooting. You're, you draw from their holster. And a lot of people think, well, you know, this is monotonous or I don't want to do it anymore. It gets pretty boring after a while. It's the same thing in martial arts. When you practice martial arts, it's repeating a movement, repeating a movement, repeating a movement. And it's until the point you get to a point where you're doing it naturally. And when I was first going through training I in the martial service, they would tell me, Okay, you know, this is why we're doing this. It's your, it's your training, it's your training, it's your training. You need to train, 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 train. And then actually I was, when I did time in special operations, in, in any kind of special operations group, we train, we train. We, we would go through a building 10, 15, 20 times, no matter how many times. And then we would evaluate who made a mistake, who did this, who did that, who went the wrong way. And it gets to the point where we would just do it by, it was just a reaction. and. 
I never thought about it. You know, I thought, you know, oh my God, another, a whole day of training again. And one day we decided to go through scenarios. We had these role players and we had these little guns with paint balls. And we had this one scenario and we were supposed to be in a judge's office and I'm supposed to be protecting the judge. And I was sitting there and supposedly a crazy guy was supposed to come in. They had a role player. This was a whole role-playing type thing, but they would put us through situations. And this crazy guy comes in and starts yelling at the judge and everything else. And I start getting in between them and telling them, you know, this is all acting. And the next thing you know, this guy pulls out a gun. And I'm not kidding you. I reacted. I literally jumped behind the desk, threw the judge down or the, the role player down. Poor guy. I, I, I think I kind of hurt. <laughs> he hit his head. But I threw him. I drew my pistol. And shot twice without even thinking. And after the fact, of course, we we come back and we stop the scenario, right? Because uh, that was the end of the thing. And the guy shot at me, didn't hit me, didn't hit the judge. And we went and looked at the guy because we would wear these protective vests because it hurts when you get hit by one of those things. I had two perfect shots in the chest without even thinking. I was literally turning around going, dunk, 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 dunk. And my rounds landed exactly. I had two rounds in the chest and one straight in the head. Well, and he had a face mask on. And I was just like, wow, wow, that is amazing. Because I never even thought, I did it without even thinking. And those are the things, like you said, building these habits, of building these lists. And, and even when you talk about building your list, Mikkel, I mean, I know you like to go through those lists, but the habit of actually making that list, adding to that list, subtracting from that list, that is what, what it's still a habit regardless. And then following the list is a habit. So the more you do these things, and, and like I said, when it comes to security, we do things just automatically. My wife and I, my wife has a federal law enforcement background also. So both of us are on the same page, 99.9% of the time, you know, and it's always, did you see that? Did you see that? Did you see him? Did you see her? Did you? There's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with that car. So when we travel, it's between the both of us that, you know, and and when I say, I don't feel good about that car that's right next to us, she might look and say, well, I didn't notice it. I didn't feel bad, but you know what? We're going to go with your gut feeling. Let's stop at the gas station or let's take off. So it, it's not just about just myself. When you're with your family, if you're, if somebody like your wife notices something, I don't feel good about that. If you go into a restaurant, I don't feel good about this place. You know what? We're not going in the restaurant and don't think, oh, because I'm the one that thinks about security all the time that your wife might, not, your my wife might be right or your kid might be right. Believe it or not, kids are very perceptive. Kids are very, very, very perceptive, probably more perceptive than adults. And I've known cases where kids have said, mommy, daddy, that man over there doesn't look cool. And sure enough, something happens. And so listen to your family, listen to your gut. Everybody has a perception. And as long as you build these habits of listening to your family, listening to your, your little one, even your little ones, because a lot of times with the little ones, you know, daddy, 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 mommy, mommy, mommy. And you kind of get kind of frustrated. You know, maybe one of the times that she's saying, daddy, 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 that guy over there's got a gun and I just noticed it and nobody else has, you know, that's when you need to be aware. And not be with, you know what, quit bothering me. 
stop it because you know you're you're getting on my nerves. And those are the things that you really need to do. And I know it it takes a conscientious effort, but once you do it, there's a saying that I think if you repeat something so many times, I don't even remember how many times it becomes a habit. I think it's like 30 times. And it's the same thing with uh, martial arts. You know, I practiced jujitsu for close to seven or eight years. I can't do it anymore, but that's the same thing. It was the same movements over and over and over. But then you start to read the other person. You already start to say when the other person moves in a certain way, it's like, ha, I got this move. And then the next thing you know, you're, you're, you're throwing them over and you've got the person submitted and you didn't even think about what you did. Even afterwards, you're, you evaluate it with the other individual. And that's when you build those habits. It's re- repetition. Well, when you were saying that, I also thought of the famous Bruce Lee quote, which is like, I don't fear the man who has done 10,000 kicks. I fear the man who has done one kick 10,000 times. And it's practicing the same type of thing over and over again. And I did martial arts for 11 years. I was on Team Canada. I competed internationally when I was young in these types of things. So that's always a quote that I always keep in my mind. And another thing that made me think is when you were talking about practicing scenarios, So I did, I was a national lifeguard in Canada and I did my master scuba divers license. And I remember I was living in the Canadian high Arctic. This was maybe 15 years ago or something like that. And I had had all of this training. We had practiced a thousand times all these different types of drills if there was an emergency. And I remember the one time someone said, this guy, he's collapsed. And I was the furthest person away. I mean, I was five times farther away than anybody else. But somehow I was the first person to reach him. And I had to give him chest compressions and uh, mouth-to-mouth breathing. And someone called the ambulance and paramedics came, but obviously it's not instant. I mean, it takes them 15, 20 minutes to get there. And if you've ever done CPR in your life, I can tell you it is extraordinarily tiring. It is, I was almost going to collapse. And Unfortunately, this this story doesn't have a happy ending. He didn't make it. However, okay, I did cry a lot afterwards. I was very upset, just to be honest. I was very upset. But at the same time, I was very glad that I had done all of that training. Because if I had not, I think that the feeling would have been that if I had been more prepared, I would have been able to save him. But I actually knew afterwards that I was extremely prepared because I take a lot of these things very, very serious. And I had practiced it thousands of times that I did everything I could. And because I did everything I could, I could forgive myself that I wasn't able to to save him. So I don't know if that makes sense, but you know, that's, that's a real life thing that happened to me on practicing a situation and actually going through something that was very, very stressful in an emergency situation. No, and and if you probably didn't realize it at the time, but everything you did was automatic. When you got there, you were like, okay, let's do this, do that, do the trust compressions and everything else. Everything came to you probably very automatic. Why? Because you probably trained and trained and trained and trained. So that's, you know, and we're talking about professional scenarios. I'm talking about training in, a, in, in, a, in an environment for law enforcement. You were talking about training in an environment for lifeguards. But training doesn't necessarily mean you have to be go through an academy or go through a school. Training is training yourself to do certain things, training yourself to have certain habits. You know, if you want to be successful, you need to have those habits regardless. We talk about going after bad guys. I did it for a living for 
30 years, really bad guys uh, in, in, through investigations at the very beginning through fugitives, uh, fugitive operations. And those fugitive operations were a lot more dangerous because you didn't have a lot of the control. You were knocking on someone's door looking for somebody. And it was something that we, before we would go up to the door, what are we, what are we looking at? Who do we have? We would make plans. And, you know, some of those times plans went south. I mean, I'm not going to tell you that they didn't. And luckily we were prepared and our team was prepared and, and we did everything. And, and even though the things went south, we were able to handle the situation. Well, I know that you have certain security clearance and things that you're not able to describe, but I would love to hear one or two quick stories. I mean, we probably only have about five minutes left in the conversation today, but one or two Mm -hmm. quick stories of real life things that you had to deal with in your work when you were in some of these countries in Latin America. Well, as far as I never really had to deal with a lot in Latin America. Now, I didn't do a lot of work. Most of my work in Latin America was diplomatic work, to be honest with you, because I I was meeting with basically, for example, Mexico. We met a lot with the head of SAT, which is the head of the revenue collection, which would be the equivalent. They run the custom service, also the directors of immigration. Now, what I can tell you is that I've had some experiences with in the sense that things were not so secure we uh, because i was going down to mexico at a time when the drug war was really 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 serious and in mexico city we literally would only go from the embassy and armored vehicles all the way to our meetings and in brazil i had a little bit more of a i've never to be honest with you one thing that as far as latin america i've never had an issue now brazil i lived there actually. And then we would go to different places and we would go out and we would do things. But like I said, I would always take those precautions. I can tell you a lot of things that happened to other people, (laughs) not necessarily me. And I gave that example of the FBI agent that didn't follow our advice. And like I said, I even went to Bogota a lot and we hung out in Bogota. It was a, it was post Escobar. So it wasn't as bad as it was back then before that, prior to that. But I never really had a lot of issues. I was always surrounded. And also not only that, but I was surrounded by a a whole group of police officers or police. I mean, whether they be federal, whoever we were working with, I mean, I would literally go out with police. So I even had a, a, we had a one part, one time we went to a, a place. And one of the things in Sao Paulo that's very common is to say, hey, do you want a bottle? Yeah, give me a bottle but they don't tell you how much it is. And then at the end of the night, they come to you with a bill for $6,000 and say, either you pay up or you know what, you go to the back room. And I don't think these guys realized that we were all cops. And these other people were actually federal cops from, from Brazil. And they did that to us. And needless to say, the minute they tried to say the bill $6,000, the federal police pulled out all of their badges and says, you know what, we'll close this place down in two seconds. And okay, not a problem. <laughs> and uh, the bill came out to like 50 bucks or a hundred bucks, like it was supposed to come out to. But I mean, I didn't have any close calls. I didn't do any undercover work in South America or normally when we did operations with the police there, or the local police, they usually provided all of the facilities, the undercovers, the uh, we were there more as observers whenever we were doing an operation with them. 
But it was pretty interesting to see how other operate, other police departments operate or other federal agencies operate in, in the different countries. And I also did a project right before I left. We created a task force in the Middle East in Jordan. That was very interesting to see. And a lot of that stuff is above, well, actually above my clearance level now because <laughs> <laughs> I don't have one. But, you know, it, it was very interesting. It was very interesting to see the other side in those countries because I got to talk to the police. I got to talk to law enforcement. I got to talk to them how things really worked down there, uh, not what the news was portraying. I think that that's where, and those are a lot of the stories I can't tell. A lot of times, especially here in Mexico, they always say you know, one of the things with security is, oh, well, there's no American, you know, this happens to Mexicans and, you know, because it always comes on the news that these Mexicans got robbed or or whatever it might be, kidnapped. It doesn't happen to Americans. I'm like, little do you know, it happens to more than you think. It's just that the governments don't talk about it and the news doesn't, it doesn't make the front page of the news. So, you know, I, I couldn't tell you of any, I have some more stories of when I was more domestic than I was when I was overseas. Well, there's something to be said for that anyways, because I think that people kind of assume that you come down to Latin America and this is where all the danger is. But there's lots of danger back home that people have to be careful of. One quick story from my side. In 2003, 2004, I spent two months in Colombia and I was in Bogota, as you were talking about before, and I was staying in La Candelaria in a, in a really beautiful part of the town, historic and, and just gorgeous. And there was a big center square about two or three blocks away from where I was staying. And I was woken up in the middle of the night, not middle of the night, but late night by a very big boom. And it turned out the next day it was a car bombing and they were attacking a political person. And I have never seen more police in my entire life, like riot gear police out for days, if not weeks afterwards, hundreds of them everywhere that you couldn't even cross the center square there. And it happened like two to three blocks away from where I was sleeping. And that was absolutely mental. And one other time there was a bombing was when I was in Morocco in 2000, but I was at the next town over. So there was one that happened and it was like maybe an hour or two hour drive, but they had targeted a tourist hotel and it made the news everywhere and made international news. And I had my grandparents and my father and everybody wondering about me because I was I was two months in Morocco in 2000, 2001, something like that. So things have, have happened around me, but I've been, have not like directly in, impacted me. I don't know, a certain amount of luck, a certain amount of things that we have been talking about today, but things happen back home as well. So it's not just overseas. No, and I can tell you a funny story that happened to me in Mexico City. <laughs> when that, the first time I went to Mexico City, I went by myself. I was supposed to go with another person that had been to Mexico City. And I actually had never been to Mexico City. Believe it or not, all the times I've been to Mexico, this was the first time. And I was going to meet with the head of SAT, which was a customs and revenue collection. And it just so happens it was the the day I decided to travel was when they were celebrating the Virgin Mary, the Guadalupe. And here in Mexico, they love fireworks and these fireworks aren't just normal fireworks. They're very loud fireworks. 
And we're in the airport. We get off. I had a driver that met me there uh, from the embassy. We're walking through the parking lot. And all of a sudden, boom, 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 boom. And I hit the ground, <laughs> literally hit the ground. And the driver's looking at me like, and I'm with all my stuff and everything, I hit the ground. And I'm like, you know, the driver's looking at me like I'm crazy. And he's like, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? And I'm like, what was that? What was that? And he says, oh, uh, you just happen to have come on the celebration of the Virgin Mary. Those were fireworks. Wait, those are the fisialis. <laughs> <laughs> and Wait, I was just like, oh, I was very embarrassed. Very embarrassed, needless to say. But and he says, as a matter of fact, there's going to be a couple of processions and it's going to take us a couple of hours to get to the hotel because we're going to be stuck in traffic. And I was like, oh, okay. But that is something that actually happened. To, it's a true story that happened to me. But sure. uh, luckily it wasn't a bombing and luckily it wasn't <laughs> uh, any kind of, of gunfire. But well, when we moved to Panama, the first like week, I want to say, you know, in the middle of the night, we'd hear a big boom. And my wife was like, oh my God, it's gunshots, it's gunshots. I'm like, no, it's a car backfiring. She's like, what's that? I'm like, in the UAE, all they're all <laughs> brand new Lexuses and everything. So we don't, you don't get that in the Middle East. You know, we spent a quarter of our lives living over there. And, but yeah, here in Panama, crappy gasoline in an old, old vehicle, car backfires. It's pretty loud, very loud. And it's just a one-off. And she thought that it was gunfire in our neighborhood. I had to gently explain to her that we were okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, and things do happen. And, and luckily I've, I haven't had any instances. Now we haven't, after I retired, we have had instances where, like I said, we've had to take off and run away or somebody's following us. Or we just, like I said, someone literally opened up the door on a van and said, and I had my back to the van. I was walking back towards the gas and my wife is just like coming. And then, cause she saw it and they were like, Hey, Hey, you, you. And, and heaven knows who you was, but I ran into the bus station, literally, well, I didn't run, but I walked very quickly into the bus station and they kept going, of course. And so we've had some little calls like that, close calls like that, but uh, I've been very lucky and fortunate and, and sent, I, I probably 99% of my close calls have been working when I was in the United States and I could go on for hours with stories, <laughs> but uh, I'll leave it. I'll just leave it at that. Now, I think this is a perfect place to to wrap it up. Ernie, thank you so much. I, I really enjoy our conversations. I really enjoy getting your insights and all of your experience and telling us about your life. So thank you very much for joining us back on the show. If people want to check out the YouTube channel, if they want to find out more about your work, where can we send them? I have my YouTube channels called Retired Life in Mexico, Noble. And basically, uh, if you go into YouTube and you just put retired life in Mexico, no bull, it'll come up. It's it, it come up in the search. And on Facebook, I also have a Facebook group of over, I think it's going on 9,000 people now. It's called Retired Life in Mexico, no bull. Uh, those are the two main avenues of communication that I use or social media that I use. And I do a variety of videos, everything from like what we talk about today, security to cost of living to different issues that you might run into when moving to Mexico. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Ernie. And I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for having me. For those interested in moving to another country, I highly recommend learning the local language before you arrive. After traveling for the last 23 years straight, I have seen many people fall into the expat bubble trap. 
This is where you move to a new country and you only talk to people from the USA or Canada and you are unable to make local friends. The best way to combat this is by having an understanding of the local language. And the best program I have ever seen for this is storylearningcourses.com. These are the programs I use to go from very crummy language skills to fluent in no time flat. The courses are fun and easy to understand and most importantly, really work. No matter where you are in your language learning abilities, go to storylearningcourses.com. That's storylearningcourses.com to learn more. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.